May the Lord Son be glorified. Uh, let's turn our attention to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. I'll read it from the English Standard Version. And if you are able, I would invite you to rise as we read God's word. Revelation chapter 2, verse eight, verses 18 to 29. And it says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your Son and for the word that you've given us in our hands today, O Lord. We pray that your spirit will enable us to understand the message you are trying to communicate to us in the church, to be vigilant uh, against attacks both from the outside and the inside as we seek to maintain a Christian witness uh, in the midst of the land that you have placed us in, O Lord. We pray that you'll, gu you'll guard our hearts and our minds and enable us to be focused. In Jesus Christ's majestic name we ask, amen. May be seated. So as we go through uh, the series on the letters to the churches in, um, in the book of, from the book of Revelation, we come to this fourth city, this fourth letter to the church in Thyatira. And it certainly is one of the more complex ones to understand. And in fact, it is the longest of all of the church letters in this book. And what makes it a little strange, apart from its length, is the fact that the city itself is not very important in the, in the larger scheme of things. And also the tone and the description of Jesus Christ the pattern of the good works of the church that is commended, but also the severity of the condemnation that is promised to the church, to those who are opposed to Christ in the church, which takes on a very uh, severe tone, different from what we have read so far. So when we look at the city, the city of Thyatira, in fact, is only known from this letter uh, in the ancient literature, uh, for the most part. And we also know that there was a lady called Lydia, if you read Acts chapter 16, who was from Thyatira. She was a seller of purple dye, and she was one of the earliest uh, patrons of the church in the city of Philipp uh, Philippi. So she was from Thyatira, but she lived in Philippi. So we, this, we know that this city is not one that had any kind of imperial importance, that had any importance in the Roman Empire. It didn't have any uh, grand claims to fame in terms of knowledge or culture or architecture, unlike the, some of the cities that we have seen before. 
What it was was a little outpost or a fort that guarded the entrance to the kingdom of Pergamum. We uh, looked at, this, at the church in Pergamum and the city of Pergamum uh, two weeks ago. So this city was an outpost. It was, it was a border town in the kingdom of Pergamum. And what ties the two churches together is that the issues that faced the church in Pergamum is also s- the same ones that would surface here too, which is a temptation for Christians um, to compromise with the world outside. And what's also unique about the city of Thyatira is that it was a trade and craftsman town. So basically, all, almost all of its population were tradesmen. And these tradesmen were people like you know, bricklayers and masons and dye makers, people who made fabrics. And these tradesmen were, and women were organized into what were called trade guilds. Now, these guilds, you can think of uh, them like trade unions almost, but uh, except for the fact that unless you belonged to the guild, you could not actually practice your trade. So if you were not a member of the guild, you could not practice your trade. So the guilds are important as we, as we approach the problem in this letter. So what Thyatira was is what we would nowadays call a blue-collar town, right? Like it's, it's full of um, uh, people who are working hard with their hands in their trades, like, you know, like Oshawa or Hamilton. You know, like my wife and her sister are from Hamilton. They're like, no, Hamilton has culture and all that. It's, but but ex- what, what, it, what it signifies is that the, 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 the identity of the town is rooted in, in, the, in, the, in the work of its people who are all uh, tradesmen. And then we come to the, to, the, to the description of Jesus in chapter 2, verse 18. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now what's interesting here is that this is the only place in the book of Revelation where the title, the Son of God, is given to Jesus Christ. Now, the deity of Jesus Christ is evident throughout the book of Revelation, but it is explicitly mentioned only in this letter to this uh, church in Thyatira. And that should give us a hint that whatever the problem is is in this church, it derives from a a confusion around who Jesus is, what, what is what is the level of allegiance that Jesus Christ as God demands from his followers. So whatever was the problem with this church was centered around a compromise to the, to the, to the uh, demands of following Jesus Christ as God. And then it talks about his eyes like a flame of fire. And that's really referring to the fact that his eyes, that he can penetrate into the depths of the human heart and mind in order to see what truly goes inside, what goes on inside the hearts of his followers. It's a reference to what we would call his omniscience, his, his all knowledge. Uh, and, and we see a similar um, you know, reference to judgment in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, where it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight or from his eyes, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And we see an example of this judgment in the same chapter in verse 23 of chapter 2 it says uh, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart with the blazing eyes of fire and I will give to each of you according to your work so Jesus 
the Son of God looks into the minds and hearts of the people who claim to follow him to see through everything on the outside and identify and validate or condemn the true nature of their allegiances, either exclusively to him or to the idols, or, to or, or it's a compromised allegiance to the idols and the things of this world as well. And then uh, the writer of Revelation, the Apostle John, also says, his feet are like burnished bronze. Now that's a reference from the Old Testament, but really what it communicates is that Jesus Christ is eternal. He is majestic. He has authority. So he is the judge, and he has the authority to carry out his judgment without asking anyone to eternal effect. And then we come to the second strangeness of this letter, which is the commendation to the church at Thyatira. It says in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So part of the judgment of Jesus Christ, when you think of the word judgment, we always think, oh, it's only to punish bad. But part of judgment of Jesus Christ, part of his omniscience is to see the good deeds, the goodness of the church. And this is a commendation that is very remarkable. This church had a visible testimony. They were fruitful in many works that exemplified their love and faith and service and endurance in the midst of tribulation. They demonstrated practical deeds. And this is in opposition to a church like Ephesus, which had all the right theology, but did not demonstrate any of that in how they lived out their daily life. So this is a desirable commendation for the church. This is a commendation that we as a church should desire to get from Jesus Christ. And in fact, he says your latter works exceed the first. The typical pattern of a church is you start strong, right? And then you enter a middle-aged crisis and then you have to like rev up the engine again. But this, this church, it says from the moment you have started up till now, the pattern of your works have only increased. In fact, they, the, the later works, the works that you're doing right now exceed the works that you did at first. But then Jesus says in verse 20, he says, but... See, the commendation is qualified. It's followed by a condemnation. It says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. You see, Christ sees everything. He doesn't just see their external deeds, their, the fruits of their uh, of their labor. He commends them for it. He doesn't want to take away from it, but he says, there is condemnation that awaits you because in your church, you have tolerated this person who is referred to here as Jezebel, who are leading people in the church to practice idolatry and sexual immorality. So what, what is happening here? We talked about the guilds. Now, these guilds in Thyatira were all divided by trade, and each trade had what is called uh, a patron god. So they each, each, like the dye makers had one god, you know, the fabric makers had another god, and so on. So this was not just an economic uh, society, but it was a religious society. It was an idolatrous society, and to be in good standing 
in the guild, you had to participate in worship to the idol or to the god who was the patron of that guild. So that included, you know, incantations, right? Uh, praise be to uh, Zeus or, or blessed be Apollo. And, and it included meat sacrifice to the idol. It included uh, periodic, like monthly memorial meals where everyone would come, they would sacrifice uh, to the god and then eat that meat. And then what would happen was, you know, the wine and the alcohol would be brought out and, and, and everyone was supposed to partake. And, and finally, in most of these guilds, uh, these the sessions would end with them bringing out women who are either temple prostitutes or just uh, prostitutes, and, and they would engage in sexual immorality. And there was no way for you to be a member of the guild without actually participating in the, the, the fellowship of the guild itself, which included all of this idolatry, all of this sexual immorality. And, and if you didn't, were not a member of the guild, not only did you lose goodwill in society, but you also lost your right to practice your trade. And so this was a problem of being cast out both economically and socially. Think of it like these people, these Christians who would not participate in the guild, would lose their jobs. Their question would be, how can I feed my family? I, all I know is how to make bricks. And, and, and this guild does not allow me to, particip- uh, to, to, to practice my trade here in this town. So how would I feed my family? And so the temptation was to justify idolatry, which was a visible participation in idol worship, and sexual immorality, whether that was passive, where you, whether they were only present and you did not do anything, or as we know from the church in Corinth, that many members of the church usually might have participated actively in sexual immorality on the grounds of having to survive in a pagan society. So this letter actually bears a lot of relevance to our current age and to our current social context. Like if you think about it, the pressure that this church faces and that we face in a small sense and we might face in a larger sense going forward is not persecution necessarily for our beliefs, but more the social and economic pressure that is brought to bear because society has decided to enforce a set of values that go contrary to our allegiance to Jesus Christ, but without which they will prevent you from having a, a, a stake or a participation in the social and, and economic life of the city. So we may not have guilds, but we have many professions which have, you know, like unions or which have like uh, societies, which have mandated statements of beliefs that have to be agreed upon before we consider a professional of good standing who can practice their profession. We may not have the problem of emperor worship or pagan worship, but we face in our daily life the continued pressure to consume and engage with the idolatrous and immoral output of a materialistic culture that considers depravity as entertainment and seduces and poisons the hearts of our minds, uh, poisons our hearts and minds away from the Lord. But we need to do that if we are to be considered uh, cool or, or, or we are to be considered as people who others will talk to or engage to socially. So if you ask about the church in North America, if you think about it, we had a flourishing church culture here in North America that faced no persecution 
from the government, from society for their beliefs. And yet they have been eaten away from the inside due to an ungodly compromise with the world. So we would do well to heed the warnings of this letter. And specifically, this letter points out three areas that are always challenging for the church that the perversion of which leads Christians astray. And those three areas are the areas of leadership or who do we follow? The, the area of knowledge, what is considered godly knowledge? And the area of Christian freedom, what liberties do we enjoy as Christians? So when you look at leadership, we see here the, the, this lady in the church is called Jezebel, and we know who was Jezebel in the Old Testament if you read the book of First Kings and Second Kings. Jezebel was the wife of the most evil king of the northern kingdom of Israel, King Ahab. And who Jezebel was, was the daughter of the king priest, or the priest king of the Sidonians. And the Sidonians worshipped Baal. And she was the daughter of the high priest of Baal. So what Ahab did was to marry the daughter of the king and priest of the Sidonians in order to make peace between the people of God and, in a sense, the world outside. So it was a marriage of convenience, of compromise. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25 to 26, it says, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So you see here, Jezebel, in a sense, was the one who was pulling the strings, even though Ahab was the king. She controlled the economic and social and religious life of the nation of Israel. And more than that, she was tolerated by the priesthood of Israel to the extent that the very, of the very few people who opposed her, one of them was the prophet Elijah, who would be driven out into the caves living in fear of Jezebel. And even after Ahab dies, Jezebel survives for a whole decade, for 10 more years, controlling her son and her grandson to create an idolatrous compromise with the world to the extent that the nation of Israel there was no longer worship of the true God in the nation of Israel, but rather only the worship of idols. And so God used um, a man called Jehu to, to enact his judgment upon her, and her judgment was a brutal death, which left her with no proper body to be buried with. It was very evident that God had judged her, because all that was left of Jezebel, after Jehu overthrew her, if you read Second Kings, was her skull, the palms of her hand and the feet. Everything else was eaten away by dogs. So Jezebel in the Bible is a shorthand for accommodation with the world, for compromise, for religious mixing of allegiance to God and with idols and serious sins to the level which invites the most severe wrath and judgment of God. That's why we don't name our kids as Jezebel. Like the people who name kid, their daughters as Jezebel, they're doing it in an ironic sense, right? Like there's a, there's a website called Jezebel, which is, which is named Jezebel because they want to encapsulate all the things that the Jezebel of the Bible stood for. 
But here when we go to the church in Thyatira, the Apostle John is saying, the Son of God is saying through the Apostle John that Jezebel, though she is dead, though the only thing that was worth of her was her skull and her palms and her feet, she is back. And she is in the church. And so the listeners would have immediately understood what John was referring to. And we've seen that the problem that the churches in Asia Minor faced, identified first in the letter to the church of Ephesus, uh, you know, under the term the Nicolaitans, was a problem of compromising with the world in a sense that brought out so-called Christians to practice idolatry and sexual immorality. And in the previous letter to the church in Pergamum, they, the apostle refers to another influencer as Balaam, who was another man who led the children of Israel astray by encouraging them to intermarry uh, the sons and daughters of Israel with the sons and daughters of the outside world. But wh who we have here, Jezebel, is the worst of all three. She is the shorthand for compromise and idolatry and false teaching. Now we know Jezebel was not her real name, but she is by, uh, for all purposes, she was a lady. We have no reason to believe that she was a man, or in the sense that this was a man, that she was a lady. And she claimed to have the, the available gift of prophecy which was still uh, uh, available at that time. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, calls her a so-called prophetess because he is all-knowing and he knows that the message that she communicates is not the message of God. So she's a so-called prophetess. And she influenced and seduced a substantial number of the church of Thyatira into idolatry, enough to be deemed as the vital threat to the life and perseverance of this church. And we have to be very careful to remember that the claim against Jezebel of Thyatira is not tied to her gender. I've heard many people say the first problem was that she was a woman. No, like that is a different uh, conversation altogether. That the claim against her is not tied to her gender, but to the content and to the impact of her teaching. And what was Jezebel's argument? Simply put, her argument was that you can maintain your faithfulness to Christ and still be an active participant member of these trade guilds in which all immorality and idolatry persist. And the argument was probably based on the lifelessness or the, la the non-existence of idols, right? Idols are not real. They're not really gods. And of the argument, for example, that meat is meat, that even if you offer it to an idol, nothing happens to the meat, nothing gets transformed chemically or physically. She probably differentiated between faith and civic life. That means that there was a life in the church, and then there was a life outside, and the life outside had a wider latitude of ethics and morality in order for you to survive in that society. And in all um, likelihood, as the problem was in the Corinthian church, she perverted the teaching on Christian liberty. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we read in verse 4, Paul's argument, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one, 
Then verse 7, or let's, let's say verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So what Paul is arguing is that in your private life, if the only possibility you have to buy meat is to buy meat from the market and all of that meat has gone through idol worship, you can eat it because nothing actually happens to the meat. And so she perverted this private teaching into a public witness whereby Christians would participate in idolatry visibly with other members of the community. So she's saying, you can do what's needed to maintain peace with the world and be a member of the guild and still come to church on Sunday because you have to feed your family. You have to do what is needed to survive and you will be all right as a Christian. And you see, Jezebel as a leader, she probably was, obviously she was influential. She was able to bring a lot of people into her camp. She was probably persuasive. And, 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 and she was charming. She was eloquent. She probably had a pretty good knowledge of the scriptures and other issues in society. And most of all, she obviously had certain strength of character because Jesus Christ says, you have tried to throw her out. And that hasn't worked. So now you tolerate her in your midst. So she's a strong person. But her leadership ultimately would lead both her and her followers to destruction because she used it to seduce others to fall away from the true worship and allegiance to Jesus Christ, who is God, and instead make peace with the world. And so the question in the churches, the question to the church, and the question to our church, the question to us in the church, is who do we follow? Who do we allow ourselves to be influenced by? Today, the, the, the realm of influence is wider than the four walls of a church or, or you know, the walls of your relationships in, in, in the city. You, you have access to so much in writing and, and listening and watching. So who do you follow? Do you follow godly leaders who are committed to the word of God, who challenge us to offer up true worship and allegiance to Jesus Christ, who convict us of our sin and call us back to repentance, who encourage us to stay firm, stay firm in our calling and not compromise with the world? Or do we follow those influences who enable us really to follow whatever we want to follow? while assuring us that everything is okay. You're under grace. You're a child of God. You know, the people who we follow, who we allow to influence us, is often a, a reflection of the, of the inclinations of our heart. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, you know, Paul said, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So you have to understand the problem of Jezebel in the church in Thyatira was not limited just to Jezebel. It was limited to the very people whose inclinations were such that they allowed this lady to, to confirm what they, in a sense, already believed and to lead them astray. People who pervert the scriptures in order to enable us to have one foot in the world and one in the church, who say it's okay to run after prosperity because God wants you to be rich. God doesn't want you to suffer who say it's okay to be sexually immoral, immoral with, you know, with, with anyone as long as you're faithful to that one person. You know, I heard this argument, you know, oh, can I be sexually immoral in a sense with my fiance? And someone said, yes, you can because you have already made a covenant with her. That's not the teaching of the Bible. Who say it's okay to put your Christian life on the back burner till your mortgage is paid off. Like that's the most important thing. Make sure that there's nothing holding you back 
in terms of debt to fully express yourself for God. The marriage of the church to Jezebel is a marriage of convenience to make peace with the world. Now, I woke up at uh, 7 o'clock yesterday. I got this notification that the royal wedding was on, so I, I, I switched it on. I saw a sermon by an American pastor. It was fine as far as sermons at these events go. He talked about love as Jesus Christ as being the primary example of love and how you know, if Harry and Meghan stayed married, their love would change the world, that there would be no poverty and all of that. And then when I went to social media, I was like, surprised. So many people were like, this is the most intense Christian teaching that we have heard in so many years. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing that this was preached at a royal wedding. I was like, there was nothing he preached. To the extent that our Christian witness today is so satisfied when we hear something from the Bible. You know, the theologian uh, Richard Neighbor, he said, Christianity today or in his time, but it's true today, is, a, is so often a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's what we have. But the end of Jezebel will not justify her teaching. Jesus says in verse 21 to 23, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. See, Jesus Christ, the omniscient, omnipotent judge, says that the end of this Jezebel will be the same visible judgment just like the Jezebel of old. Her time for repentance was up. She went probably through a process of church discipline. She didn't repent. And there's a time to repent. But if you do not repent, the Lord's patience in the face of an adulterated idolatry among his people is not infinite. So now, both her who had participated and seduced others into the bed of adultery with idols will be thrown on thrown onto the bed of sickness and death, and her life would meet an end at the hands of one whose eyes are like blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. And her children, those who have said, we will follow her to the death, would indeed do so. The Lord will give us over to the judgment that's promised to those with whom we make our allegiance. We have a choice. Either we are exclusively committed to Jesus Christ or we are committed to someone else. And if so, the judgment that awaits them awaits us as well, in a certain sense. But he graciously also gives the opportunity for those who he says were committing adultery, who are flirting with her in a sense, to repent, even as suffering came upon them as a warning before their final judgment. May that be a warning to us too. If we have inf invited the influence of leaders who are leading us away from Christian witness, who are leading us away from Christ and into the world and damning judgment. So leadership is an issue. Then secondly, knowledge is an issue. It's verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden. See, Jezebel was offering some kind of secret knowledge that is not to be found in the written scriptures or apostolic teaching. You know, it is, it is some kind of teaching which said, uh, you know, that beyond what is written in the scriptures or beyond what Paul and Peter and John have said, there's a, there's a higher level of teaching. So she would have called it the deep things of God. But Jesus Christ sarcastically says, these are not the deep things of God because they're not from God. 
Rather, these are the deep things of Satan because what it leads you is to behavior that is satanic. Jezebel was probably not telling people in the church, come with me and learn the deep things of Satan. But Jesus Christ is saying the deep things that she claims to teach you is actually the deep things of Satan and not of God. You can, what she's teaching essentially is that you can have the world and you can have Jesus as well. And even today, many perversions of knowledge exist in the church. People are searching after deep things, numbers, signs, blood moons, this and that. Oh, the embassy moved to Jerusalem, what will happen now? Or, or they devalue the basics and plain meaning of the Bible to search after application to every current event or issue without having a concern for the gospel. You get bored with the gospel. You get bored with the nature and character of God. You cherry pick parts of God's word. You say, oh, Paul. Who is Paul? Let's follow Jesus. Let's, let's just read the red letters in the four gospels. And that's, who, that's what we follow. You know, Andy Stanley recently said, Christians must be willing to unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. Like, what does that even mean? The Old Testament is the scripture of Jesus Christ. How can you unhitch yourself from the scripture that Jesus himself followed? They use knowledge to excuse a lack of Christian witness. Like in the issue uh, in Corinth, they had a flawed sense of eschatology, a prophetic uh, event. So they, they excused immorality. They excused idolatry. They knew that idols were not existent. So instead of you know, living with that in, in the sense of having enough food to feed themselves, they went outside into the world and committed visible idolatry in the temples that pagans would worship in. And today we have people who would use knowledge to excuse and condone or encourage sin. They're teachers in the church who say, oh, the context of Paul was different from today's society. He did not have any idea of the institutions that we have in today's society. So therefore, what he says doesn't apply to us. People who use, who misrepresent the word of God in order to condone and encourage sin. And we also, we discount the tie between having knowledge and moral transformation. We are people who want to apply knowledge, who want to gain knowledge for the sake of having knowledge. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 10 to 11, it says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, so that we can being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That is the, 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 the intended effect of Christian knowledge. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that if you have all the knowledge in the world but if you do not have love, you are a clanging symbol. Just having knowledge is not enough. True knowledge does not lead to a lesser obedience of God. It does not lead to greater sin but it leads to ongoing transformation in the life of the Christian so that we can become more like Jesus Christ. So the perversion of leadership, the perversion of knowledge, and lastly, the perversion of Christian freedom, which is closely tied to you know, the, the, the perversion of knowledge. How do you apply your Christian liberty to daily life? When you say the word freedom, the natural human tendency is to define freedom as to be free of all constraints. And certainly that is the spirit of the age in which we live in. We want to be free of moral constraints. We want to be free of biological concern, uh, constraints. We want to be free of ethical constraints. But the Bible doesn't define freedom as freedom from constraints. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, 
Verse 17 to 18, he says, But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. What Paul is saying is that you will be a slave. Either you are a slave to the rule of sin, which disguises itself as freedom, or you will be free because you are slaves to the rule of Christ, which leads to righteousness. For Christians, true freedom is freedom from the law of sin and death to serve God freely and to enjoy Him and the pleasures that He gives to the fullest extent. It is the liberty to love God and to love our neighbor without the barrier of sin and guilt and ritual and tradition to hold us back. So when Paul talks about Christian freedom, he talks about freedom from having to deal with the rituals of the law which prevented people from freely entering and enjoying God's presence. He talked about the freedom of conscience that came from knowing that idols idols have no true power and that meat sacrificed to idols are not transformed. Therefore, you can eat the meat in your home, especially when that was the only choice. But he did not intend it. The Bible did not intend Christian freedom to be freedom from the constraint of Christian testimony and Christian morality and Christian ethics. In fact, Some of these constraints are what keeps us as Christian. You know, G.K. Chesterton once uh, humorously said, you know, do not free a camel of the burden of his hump. You may be freeing him from being a camel. Not all constraints are meant to be unshackled. And, And you see, in the Corinthian church, almost immediately the Corinthian believers took Paul's teaching on Christian liberty and ran with it to engage in all kinds of sexual immorality and public idolatry. And a similar trajectory seems to have been followed by Jezebel and her followers, followers in Thyatira. See, Christian freedom is never a license to sin, to go outside the boundaries of what is black and white in the Bible in terms of moral and ethical purity, or to compromise our Christian witness. Today, so many people, especially young people, I want to tell you that you're misinterpreting the role of conscience and the strong and weak argument to engage in behavior that is not in keeping with Christian testimony. When Paul says there's a strong brother and a weak brother, he's not arguing about the validity of their argument. He's saying that they have applied their conscience in different ways, and those who understand the issue differently must defer to those whose conscience will destroy them if they engage in certain behaviors. So I know that I can go into a pub and not drink alcohol because I can eat the food there, for example, or I can drink alcohol in my Christian freedom, but I will not do it if a fellow brother of mine was a recovering alcoholic. That is, it is not my place to try to bring him out of his weakness into strength. That is not what the Bible asks you to do. And then we have overconfidence in our own conscience, in our own moral strength. You know, the questions that often come up can I watch this show on HBO? Does it have sexual nudity? Yes. No, you can't watch it. But I like it for the story. If you like stories so much, there's, uh, you know, each book in the Lord of the Rings series is 10 hours unabridged. You spend your entire life probably reading it. I've seen couples who are like, oh, I trust my husband. Therefore, it's okay to watch it. That's very cute, it's very romantic. But it's not biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom does not say, oh, you have trust in the covenant of marriage, therefore you override what Job said, it's a covenant he made with his eyes. 
I've had people ask questions, is it okay for a Christian couple to watch pornography together so that they can use that to encourage them in their own life? No. You don't understand. We do not judge things by intended results. We judge things whether they are true to the faith that Jesus Christ died on the cross to give us. And we are so overconfident in our own conscience, in our moral strength, that today the church is enslaved, just like the world is, to pornography. 60% of young adults, men and women, say they have searched out, not by accident, pornography in the last month. And that includes people, obviously, in the church. And Jesus Christ, he's the one with the eyes of fire that penetrates hearts and minds. Today, he's laying bare the hypocrisy of his people when it comes to the misuse of Christian liberty to tolerate and encourage sin. That's why we see all these scandals of sexual immorality in the church. Because Jesus Christ wants you to know it is not just their problem. It is our problem. We condone and we call things good that the Bible has said should have no place in the life of a Christian. It doesn't matter what your conscience is. The conscience is not revelation from God. Jesus Christ says at the end of this chapter, verse 24 onwards, he says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not earned, learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here is freedom. He says, no other burden than to hold fast to what you have. The teaching, the practice, the ethics, the morality of being a Christ follower. And here we see in the book of Revelation, the first reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's a reference to his coming in judgment to vindicate those who are his, who have exclusively committed their lives to him, who have allied themselves only to him and to destroy those who have taken on the allegiance of the world, including Jezebel and her followers. And that's very ironic to many Christians. The, the, the whole notion of overcoming in the book of Revelation is an ironic notion because when the world is seeking to destroy you socially, economically, and physically, it won't seem like you're an overcomer. But Jesus Christ says that the world may try to put you in the dust, but I will raise you up to the heights of heavenly glory, to be co-regents, co-rulers, co-judges of, with him of the nations, to share in the authority that he has received from the Father, to judge nations for their deeds. He's saying the nation may seek to judge you today on your Christian witness and condemn you for it, but one day you will judge them. He who is the morning star, the Messiah, to whom all authority has been given, he gives the morning star to his followers. So they will also judge with him, him who is coming on the clouds to rule and judge the world. So today's society, social acceptance, we may not get it unless we engage with the practices of the world. 
we do not have guilds, but we have lawyer societies and medical societies and, and unions of teachers and, 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 and you know, big companies like Google and Facebook who own higher computer engineers if you hold to values that are different from their company policy. When push comes to shove, who are you willing to commit your exclusive allegiance to? Even if it means the loss of your economic standing, the loss, the loss of your social standing. That's what Jesus Christ wants us to think about today. Verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word that is so clear, so often so black and white, and yet we say it is not, we say it is gray, and there are issues that we have to debate and discuss, but we know, Lord, that you do not tolerate your people to engage in idolatry and in sexual immorality and in all the practices of the world that are um, driving us away from our exclusive commitment to you and into the hands of the ruler of this world. We need to come back, O Lord, to him who was crucified on the cross to take away our sins and to free us from the law of sin and death so that we can be free to enter into the presence of God the Father unashamed, without guilt, because you sit at the right hand interceding for us. May we take our joy and our satisfaction and all the validation that we need from that fact and not from the world which promises all riches and glory, but yet, O oh Lord, are bound up in the idolatry and sexual immorality that is not, that is not uh, the portion of the people of God. May we have the strength and the courage to persevere and to endure. And may this church have the, the, the grace, O oh Lord, to receive that good commendation that the church received. But we also need your strength, O oh Lord, so that we can fight whatever attacks us from the outside and from the inside. Give us the strength as we go out into our daily lives. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray.